you turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26. We're continuing to march through uh, Matthew, and we're in the final three chapters of this Gospel, 26, 27, and 28. And we are in the final week uh, examining Jesus' earthly ministry. As you're turning there, there's uh, many, many signs and symbols that we know people would point to or identify as representative of, of the Christian faith or of the Christian uh, religion. I think many in our culture might simply point to uh, a church sanctuary or a steeple on top uh, of a church as representing the Christian church and people. Uh, Perhaps most uh, inside the church and outside would point to the symbol of the cross as uh, that central sign representing what Christ has done for for us as his people. But but there's other signs and symbols. Uh, People might point to the dove that image that descended upon the Lord Jesus in his baptism back in Matthew chapter 3 when, uh, when Jesus was beginning his ministry and the Holy Spirit des- descended upon him in the form of a dove. Others might point to the rainbow, uh, the bow in the clouds as a sign representing what, what we believe, God's sign uh, and his covenant that he established with Noah in the early chapters of, of Genesis, this promise that God would preserve his people. Uh, There's many signs and symbols that we could identify. But here in Matthew 26, Jesus gives to us arguably what is the central sign that will mark the disciples of Christ. And that is the sign of a meal. Not only only a sign that commemorates what Jesus has done, done, but it's a sign that we participate in together as his people. We eat of the bread, we drink of the cup, we take this into our bodies to give us strength spiritually, uh, to reflect that union that we have uh, with Christ. It is a precious picture. And so let us see uh, this sign that Jesus gives to us. In Matthew 26, it's verses 17 to 29. The sign that indeed we feed upon for our very life. Matthew 26, verse 17. Listen now to God's word. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said to them, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they, all of them, were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. A couple of uh, weeks ago, you may recall that we called for a congregation-wide fast for that Saturday, a fasting for the whole day to recognize uh, corporately uh, where our dependence truly lies, uh, who it is that sustains us in our lives. Uh, many of you perhaps participated in that, a fasting from food. If you have fasted before, uh, you know all it takes is uh, abstaining from one or, or a couple of meals before you very quickly uh, are uh, made known, your senses kind of come alive, um, how much we are dependent upon that which is outside of us for sustenance, for life, for our existence. Um, Unlike our Lord, who is absolutely independent, self-sufficient, He is dependent on nothing for His existence. We, as creatures, are utterly dependent. Without food, we very quickly weaken, we wither. Hunger or pain set in. We need food to live. Uh, This is perhaps one of the reasons so many both religious and national holidays are accompanied uh, with food, and they center around food. Food represents life, and so oftentimes food accompanies celebration. Uh, This was true in Israel's life. Three times a year, uh, the people of God were to hold a week-long feasting, a rest from the burdens of life and remembrance of what God has done. We're told in Exodus 23, verse 14, about those three feasts. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me, the Lord said. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of Passover, that is. Second, you shall keep the feast of harvest, which took place seven weeks later, 49 days, on the 50th day, uh, Pentecost, uh, the feast of harvest, giving thanks for what God has provided. And then the third feast, you shall keep the feast of ingathering, or the feast of tabernacles, that feast that recalled God's tabernacling with His people through the wilderness event and wilderness wandering three times a year. We might think of our own national holiday of Thanksgiving where family and friends gather together and often it centers around a meal that is shared together. But here in Matthew 26, there's something radically different about this meal that Jesus shares with His disciples. It's not only the last supper, it's the last meal taking place on a Thursday, the night before Jesus will be crucified, a final meal he'll eat with his disciples before he is put to death. But it's at this meal that Jesus points to a food and offers a food that satisfies the greatest human hunger, the greatest human need, the deepest craving and hunger of a person's heart. When this food gets inside a person, they have received the remedy for any other craving in life. This food that Jesus offers satisfies. It causes one to be full. This food actually produces new life. When this food gets inside a person, it actually creates an everlasting life. That's how radical this food is that Jesus mentions. Remember our Lord's words in John chapter 6. 
when he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But I am the living bread that came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give is my flesh, Jesus says. A few chapters later in John chapter 10, Jesus uttered those very powerful words that I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. Isn't this what people are seeking after in life? A life that is abundant, a life that is full, a life that is satisfied. God created people this way with a desire, with an appetite for life, with a hunger Even before sin entered the world, when God placed Adam and Eve in a garden, he put before them trees to eat. And he said, you may eat of any of these trees, and he put the tree of life. But you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave to people a hunger for life. They were given a hunger, but their appetite, their hunger led them to eat what was forbidden. And still today, people are empty, seeking for that which would fulfill, that which would satisfy. As it pertains to food, I'm I'm quite amazed in our own day, perhaps in the last couple decades, the growing popularity and number of various diets uh, that are offered out there, uh, perhaps some of them promising uh, wellness and health and life. Just a quick survey, and uh, you see surface uh, the vegan diet, the paleo diet, uh, the South Beach diet. I can't recall what that is. Uh, The Atkins diet. Uh, If you're like me, you're on the seafood diet. That's not fish and clams. That's whatever you see, you eat. Uh But there's a lot uh, offered in our culture, not just by way of food, but entertainment, careers, you name it, that offers fulfillment and flourishing and satisfaction in life. The old man, the, the, the natural man, is, is inclined in this to pursue various things for fulfillment. But Jesus offers here a food that is a, of a completely different nature. And the food that he offers here in Matthew 26, comes in the shadow and the larger story of Passover. So we were told in verse 17 to 19 that it was the first day of unleavened bread or the first day of Passover, and the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal? And he told them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. And so the disciples went and prepared the Passover The next day, Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross. And that cross, and what that cross represents, is casting a very long shadow going all the way back, in this case, to the Exodus story and the days of Moses. It casts a long shadow. When God's people were in slavery, and He called them to sacrifice a lamb, and with its shed blood, They were to cover the door frames of their homes as a sign that when God passes through Egypt and brings a judgment upon his enemies, he would pass over those homes and those families and those people marked by the blood of the Lamb. 
It was by the shedding of blood that they were delivered. So Passover was a reminder of the slavery that the people of God needed to be delivered from. And it was a celebration of God's grace toward his people while this lamb was sacrificed in their place. Of course, Passover was to be annual, year after year after year. A lamb was to be sacrificed year after year after year because its shed blood could not atone or cleanse from sin for all time. Passover is in the shadow of the cross. It pointed to the need for a greater sacrifice, one that would cleanse for all time our sin. But this Passover that we have just read about here in Matthew 26 is different. This year was different. It would be the final Passover. Jesus said, my time is at hand. Jesus is going to draw attention to himself as he takes the bread and as he takes the cup and he breaks it and says, eat, take, eat, this is my body. Poured out this cup for the forgiveness of sins. But he first turns attention to his disciples. And it's not only surprising what Jesus does, it's quite disruptive if you think about it. It says in verse 20, that when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus is willing to disrupt the most significant meal, the center of Israel's life, the center of Jewish life. It says, as they were eating, in the middle of the Passover meal and celebration. Why does he do this? What effect does it cause? He is causing his disciples, and not only his disciples, but that every subsequent generation of disciples would stop at times in their lives to examine themselves. And that's exactly what they do. You and I, as we read this story, know what the disciples did not yet know, that it would be Judas who would betray the Lord. But how do the disciples respond? As Jesus gives this warning, this pronouncement, one of you is going to betray me. We're told one by one, they all asked him, is it I, Lord? Is it I? In Mark's account, he presses this home all the more. One by one, they began to ask the Lord, not just themselves, but the Lord, is it I? It's almost suggesting this series of private interviews with the Lord. And Jesus' warning creates this intended purpose, that disciples would come to Jesus with questions about themselves. That's what self-examination is very much about in our lives as Christians. It's a gift from the Lord. I think the disciples, they respond appropriately here. They believe They believe the word of Christ and his warning more than their own resolve and their own commitment. They actually question, is it I? The text tells us in verse 22, after Jesus warns of betrayal, that they all became very sorrowful. 
Now, there's something good and appropriate about that kind of response. Have you ever or have you lately felt a sorrow, that is, that, that broken, contrite spirit over your sin? Or the struggle of continuing sanctification and following the Lord? Have you felt that kind of sorrow? The Scriptures suggest this is a good and exemplary part of faith. We remember Psalm 139. The psalmist says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is a man who understands that believers do not always see their sin. They're not always aware of their sin. I need to examine. I need to come before the Lord and ask Him to examine me. And remember Paul's words to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see if you be in the Lord. Strong words. Examination is important. It's necessary. If you've been to a physician or a dental hygienist for a physical exam or an oral exam, if you've had an x-ray or a scan of some kind, then you likely know sometimes conditions, ailments, uh, decay comes to the surface and is brought to light, something that you did not know was there. Every six months, uh, when our family is scheduled for our dental checkup, it's a feeling of dread for me because I'm thinking to myself, what, is, what are they going to find this time? How many cavities is it going to be? Am I headed for a root canal? Again. <laughs> but I go because there's no remedy for my condition unless I'm able to see what that condition may be. Now, there's a limitation to our self-examination in our Christian living. Examination does not cleanse from sin. Sin runs very deep. Sin is well beneath the surface of all that we can see. You notice in this narrative, while all the disciples in verse 22 feel sorrow, one by one it says they began to ask the Lord, is it I, is it I? Yet, we'll discover next week, and many of us are familiar with this, that in the next episode, Peter is going to promise to the Lord, all may fall away, Lord, I will never fall away. Here he is, feeling a sorrow, perhaps questioning, along with the other disciples, is it I that may betray you? And then he's going to promise never to fall away. And then we're going to find him falling denying the Lord three times. Now, that's still to come. Sin runs deep. Uh, our hearts are fickle. We make uh, resolutions, we express resolve, and then we fall. So examination does not cleanse from sin, but it reveals our need. It points us to the Savior. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said this, those who mourn for sin are blessed, for it is a means to prevent eternal sorrow. There's no sinner upon the face of the earth who at some time or other must come to understand what sin means. As it is determined in heaven that all men must die, so it is determined that all men must once sorrow. 
It's a certain rule. You must have sorrow for sin and repent. How much better it is to sorrow for sin while it may be pardoned than to sorrow for sin when there can be no help. Sorrow, mourning, it fits us to receive the grace of God in Christ. How sweet is one drop of mercy. It is worth more than 10,000 worlds. How are we to respond to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Our Lord points us to Himself. In verse 26, He says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is uh, My body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. At the heart of the Gospel, at the heart of this meal that Jesus is celebrating and instituting is what He has done for us. It's not centered on what we offer to the Lord. It's what He offers to us, which is Himself. Uh, He's the central subject of, of all the verbs, all the actions in the story. He's the one who takes the bread. He's the one who blesses it. He's the one who breaks it. He's the one who gives it. And He's the one who speaks and says, take, eat, this is my body. He offers Himself for us as a substitute. You notice the language. This is my body, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's the language of substitution. It's what Paul drives home in 2 Corinthians 5 for God who made, God who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin, our Lord Jesus, for us. Christ on the cross absorbed our sin and guilt and He received the very wrath of God in our place. His blood was shed for us so that God would pass over us, pardoning us by His mercy. How do we respond to that grace that God has poured out through the cross of Christ? Many of our hymns are rich in expressing hearts of praise and wonder and love at the cross of of Christ. I think one of the greatest is very old, uh, 800 to 1,000 years old by St. Bernard of Clairvaux during the monastic period. It's in our hymnal, O sacred head, now wounded. Here's the final words of that hymn. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this your dying sorrow, your pity, your mercy without end? Make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to Thee. A proper response to the cross of Christ is a life of devotion, of regular, daily devotion to our Lord. For any of us and all of us, apart from regular Devotion, apart from regular meditation and intake of the Word of God in our lives, apart from regular drawing near in communion and prayer, 
with our Lord, it is hard to know and experience the depth of God's peace and joy and love that He desires for us. Shelley and I are reading a book right now called Real Peace by a man named Andy Farmer. Listen to these uh, few words. He says, When I meet with people who are struggling in some profound or ongoing way, I almost never hear them describe a flourishing devotional life. Maybe they had it at one point, but the stressors of life undercut it. Maybe it never got off the ground in the first place. And then he says, nobody wants to hear the words, let's get your devotional life going as the first step of counsel. We usually want particular steps or strategies. And then he quotes Billy Graham. After a long and fruitful life of uh, 92 years, he, he said this, age 92, if I had to do it over again, I'd spend more time in meditation and prayer, telling the Lord how much I love Him and adore Him and long for the time to be with Him in eternity. That's an encouragement to us in our devotional living before the Lord. Uh, nothing can substitute for that communion that we enjoy with our Lord Jesus Christ in response to His offering of Himself. As Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, perhaps the most profound words that He says here are those words, take, eat, this is my body. This is my blood. Teaching His disciples about the real presence of his real presence through this meal. He doesn't merely say, this bread represents my body, this cup represents my blood. Rather, this is my body. This is my blood. Not that the bread and the wine become the physical body of our Lord. For our Lord is physically, locally in one place. He is in the heavens at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling with all power and dominion. That's locally, physically, where He is. Yet Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. It is through the bread and the cup that the Spirit of God enables us to know the real and spiritual presence of of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin, along with our confession, state that as real as the bread and cup are to our physical senses, as we see it, as we touch it, as we taste it, so is His presence real in this meal. What a gift that the Lord's Supper is. Not only when we partake of it, but when we reflect upon it. At any time, when we think upon it, what he is saying, what he is communicating through this meal, that our Lord has given us something not only to remember his sacrificial death, it's much more than a memorial, but this means to feed upon his life-giving presence. It's a reminder that our God is with us.
I am with you. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper or we think about the Lord's Supper, it's communicating his communion, his presence dwelling with us. I am with you as your, as your God. Think about what the disciples have been through, through the Gospel of Matthew, in this three-year ministry along with the Lord Jesus. It has been a trying three years. It's been filled with storms at sea, attacks from religious leaders, very hard words from the Lord Himself about the prospect of suffering, persecution, and even their own death on His behalf. And yet, as hard as the journey is, times of uncertainty for them, times of doubt, times of confusion, what has following the Lord Jesus brought them to? To be with Him in the upper room. As hard as the path of discipleship is at times, it is the only, it is the exclusive path that allows a person to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with him, to hear from him, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is here that Jesus is with his people. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for indeed your real presence, a spiritual presence, Lord, that you have gifted to us, that we enjoy union and fellowship with you. And Lord, not only fellowship with you, but we together are a part of the body of Christ, your body, so that we commune and fellowship with each other. So we pray, Lord, that you would make us one, that we would know your divine and glorious presence in our lives, that Lord, just as we take in physically this bread and this cup, that we would feed upon your life-giving presence in our lives. Oh Lord, may we uh, know a, a deeper uh, devotion to you, a deeper sincerity. And yet, Lord, may it, may it flow out naturally uh, because our eyes are set upon the, the wonderful grace that you have displayed in the cross of Christ. Lord, how we thank you that you forgive all of our sins, that we, that we stand uh, justified before you, Father, may we we see ourselves as you see us. Uh, Sinners made into saints because of your abundant grace. Continue to be with us, Lord, as we give you the worship due your name, we pray. All this in Jesus' name, amen.